as has been stated, it is odd to be here and to sing uh, without the whole church family with us. One of the things that I miss sitting on the front row is, is hearing you sing, um, especially during All I Have is Christ, which we normally bring the instruments out and we all sing, uh, we all sing a cappella, and I, I just miss hearing that. Um, if you happen to be um, chiming in and uh, with us for the first time, um, here at Single Mountain Bible Church, we normally preach verse by verse through books of the Bible, and we are in First Peter. Uh, and so if you need to catch up, all those sermons are on the internet. I think the last three um, are on YouTube. The other ones are on our website. And so I would uh, encourage you to do that. Uh, it's just fitting uh, that we planned, that the elders asked us to preach through this book long before COVID-19 uh, was in our minds, and, uh, but it's just a very pertinent book for these times. And these are odd uh, times. And one of the things that I'm thankful for, and one of the things that I take courage in, is I'm thankful that God is working. Uh, as you've heard us say, church family, we fully believe that this did not take God by surprise, and we fully trust in the fact that God is working all things for the good of those who love Him. Those are called according to His purpose. And one of the things that I think He is doing in the midst of this is He is graciously ripping away idols, ripping away temptations, ripping away things in our hearts and in our minds that could be pulling us away from glorifying God and depending upon God and loving God like we should. If you think about it, many of you um, may be in times where your job is uncertain. Maybe your job was something that you looked at to define you. Maybe that's where you got your security and now that could be in jeopardy. I, I know none of us know what the next two, four, six, eight weeks hold. Uh, and this could affect us financially. And if our hope and trust is in money, um, that's an idol that is being ripped from us. Um, many of us love sports. Uh, our kids participate in sports and with no sports on TV um, and no sports being played around uh, Signal Mountain. Um, it's another thing, that, another idol that potentially is ripped from us. And another one that I thought of as well is that, um, you know, so many people, one of the idols in their life is how they're seen by others and the praise that they get from other people and being around other people. And uh, if that's where your idol is, if that's where your heart is, these are difficult times from you, for you. I, be, I guess there are things like TikTok and other things where you can try to garnish praise, but I'm hoping that God is lovingly and graciously pulling some of those things from you. Now, we are going to, at some point in our uh, culture, be tempted uh, of what are we going to do when all of a sudden all of these things come back into our lives? How are we going to react? What are we going to do with what God might be doing in our life. I'm thinking of it as at some point in the future there will be a hard reset and are we just going to go back to life as it was? Or, or are we going to take note of what God is doing in our life? Are we going to live as one who loves God above all? 
Are we going to live as one who loves and lives for God's glory? Are we going to love God and love others with all of our heart and mind and soul? As we open God's Word and look in 1 Peter this morning, the audience, the original audience to which Peter was writing, if you've been with us, you know that he was writing to a group of exiles and sojourners and aliens, people who, uh, according to my southern statement, weren't from around here, here being Asia Minor. And they were having difficult times. They were experiencing low-level persecution. The persecution would ramp up over time. These are people who had lost everything. They were strangers in a strange land. And as being believers, being Christians, um, it made them even more at odds with the culture around them and led to um, them being um, seen as uh, less than. And so they had a choice to make. And I don't know if we've thought about this when we read 1 Peter, but they had a choice to make as well. They could change their lives, change the things that they do, change the gods that they serve in order to try to blend in, in order to try to to fit in, in order to try not to be different, in order to try to not to be persecuted. And as Peter is writing this text, as we have seen in the first chapter so far, he is encouraging them. And we're going to see he's going to continue to encourage his readers, to live differently. In the first part of 1 Peter, we get the gospel. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That He's calling them back and that these people who have been called, who have been born again, have an inheritance that is not of this world. And so this gospel defines who they are and who we are in the midst of culture. And then in verse 13, we have this dramatic turn where Peter says, therefore, and he marches into, um, therefore, this is how you should live, much like Romans 12 in the book, book of Romans. And the first thing that we get is we get three imperatives or three statements saying, do this, act in this way. And today we're going to spend our time on the third one, but I want you to hear all three. The first one is found in verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of of Jesus Christ. So the first imperative we have is fix your hope on God. The second imperative that Gary touched on last week in verse 15. But like the Holy One who called you, here's the imperative, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. So fix your hope on God. Be holy. Live life separated. Live life different to the glory of God. And today we find the third one in verse 17. And read with me along at home. If you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. And so the third imperative is this. Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. And you may already be saying in your mind, well, this sounds like a paradox. 
This is a really odd statement. Conduct yourselves in fear. What about the statement that perfect love casts out all fear? As you read this book, some of the things you see is that this book, this letter, Peter is calling us to to hope. He tells us to rejoice. This is the book that we point to where we find our security. And yet Peter here is saying, conduct yourself in fear. In fact, if you turn over to just a couple of pages in your Bible to chapter 5. Look at verse 7, a well-known verse. Casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. It doesn't sound like we should be conducting ourselves in fear. It sounds like we should be casting all our anxiety upon Him. And what about verse 10 in chapter 5? After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So what about fear? Is this a paradox? And what I want to say is no. I want to say no, and I want you to see this with me. I have poured over this text and spent many hours, and I'm hoping, that, I'm hoping I can help unlock this. I'm hoping you can see the truth of this text, that the biblical writers did not see any paradox in this idea of fearing, judgment, and love, and mercy. In fact, I want to point you just to a couple of places in the Bible. We could, we could go to almost all of Proverbs. We have the idea of the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the fear of the Lord and, and various other things. But in Psalms, Let's go to the book of Psalms in chapter 34. And listen as I read verses 4 through 7. Listen for um, how the psalmist uh, delights in God, but also notice the idea of fear. I sought the Lord, and He answered me, and He delivered me from all my fears. They looked to Him and were radiant, and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescue him. Notice the comfort. Notice the security. Notice the love and the mercy of God and the saving power of God. And notice in this same Uh, context that we see that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescue him. Let's just read a couple more verses, starting with verse 8. We love these verses. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Then, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For to those who fear him, there is no want that we see all throughout the Scripture, that for those who fear the Lord, they have no want, they have wisdom. The Lord protects them. The Lord encamps around them. The Lord uh, brings joy and praise to those who fear the Lord. So as we read this, it's pointing to something here. And as we dig, we're going to see beauty. We're going to see mercy. We're going to see grace. And we're going to see security. Now, in the Greek, these verses, 17 through 21, uh, they are one 
long sentence. And the logic is pretty clear. I'm going to read it, and I'm just going to point out the logic of this text, and you'll see it. The logic is, is pretty clear. If you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. So, the first thing that we see is that if you address God as your father, conduct yourselves in fear. Knowing, knowing, so fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished, spotless, the blood of Christ. So we see what's happening here. There are these, there's this clause. He's saying, conduct yourselves in fear, and we are to do that because we are calling upon God as our Father, so fear, and knowing that you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. So what in the world is going on here? And I hope I can help with the understanding. So I want to look at these two, um, these two ideas. The first one, the God is Father, and then the second one, I want to look at the blood, the precious blood that we've been redeemed with. And so first, let's look, look at verse 17, and notice this. Notice this. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges. And so the great news, maybe for you, if you are a believer, the great news that you have is the one who judges is your Father. If you are not a believer, you will stand before God as the judge of the universe alone without your Father and His Son by your side. The judge is our Father. And this term Father is a a family term and it's endearing. But notice There's also this aspect of the one who judges is our Father. He is also, as we sang this morning, He is holy, He is righteous, He is just. And He is loving, He is caring, He is gracious, and He is merciful. I think one of the things that we miss, that this text brings out, that we miss in our daily lives, is what an awesome God we serve. Awesome in power, awesome in beauty. Awesome in justice, awesome in mercy. And those things are not contradictory in God. Notice it says, if you address God, if you address as Father the one who judges impartially, this word address here means to call for help from a deity. And so in other words, what this is showing is that if your dependence, if you are calling outside of yourself to God the Father, and, and He's our Father in terms of uh, that we saw in verse 3 several weeks ago, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again. So those who are born again, He is their Father. In those who call upon Him, He is judging. Now remember, there's also the verse in Romans. All who what? Call upon the Lord will be saved. The other thing that I want, you, want us to notice is that God is the judge. But what do scriptures tell us about who God has appointed to judge all things in the end? Jesus. 
So God the Father is our judge, but He has appointed our Savior to be the one who judges over us. Now, Martin Luther many years ago, I think, helps us here with this whole idea of judgment. And he talks about two different types of judgment. The first one, and I'm going to mess these words up because my Latin is not what it... I don't know if it needs to be anything. But the first one is the servile um, type of judgment. And this is the judgment um, that, that you would expect from a prisoner or a slave. Um, so one who is fearing a malicious master. Uh, think under the terms of like um, Jews in concentration camps who were fearing the judge, fearing judgment. The other type is filial, and this, this type of judgment, as Luther points out, um, this word in Latin means family, and this would be the fear that the child has of a loving father. That there is a fear, there is an awe, there is a respect that a child should have of his loving father. But God is our heavenly father, is not grouchy. Kids are elbowing their dads right now in their living rooms. He's not moody. He doesn't move the goalposts so we don't know what is pleasing and unpleasing to him. He doesn't get tired and fed up with the quarantine and so therefore acts in ways that uh, maybe aren't too nice. Our Heavenly Father is our Father, and He loves His children. And so when it talks about uh, judgment, when it talks about fear, it's talking about the fear and the judgment of a loving Father would have for His child. Now, we're going to continue to develop this, but I want to point out a couple more things that are important. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges, this word... um, if we were to look at its origins and to look at its tenses, it's a, it's, it's a present active participle, which means a current judgment. That, so God, who is impartially judging His children. So as, the, as Peter is writing this, and I think it's for us as well, if you address His Father, the one who is impartially judging according to each one's work, there is a sense, and this is vitally important to this text, that God is currently judging our actions. Now, it does affect the future, and we're going to point to this in a minute. It does affect the future because our current actions are storing up either wrath or judgment. The other thing that I want us to get from this is that God is impartially judging, and that means that we don't have this sense of the good old boys club. What this text is pointing out to us is this is not this thing to where your judge is your father so that you go in the courtroom and you're, you're guilty and you're doing all these bad things and he just kind of hushes it without any payment, without any penalty, just kind of lets you go free because of who you are. It says in the text that he is impartially judging. And that because of this, because of this, during our stay on earth, that there should be fear. Now, stay with me. You may think I'm heading one way and I'm not heading there. So stay with me. Let's jump and look at verse 18. Knowing, verse 18. So, 
Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things. Fear, fear during this time. Conduct yourselves in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things. This word redeemed in in this day and age in which this was written, uh, there was this idea that if you were in slavery, that you could be bought out of slavery. You could be bought out of slavery. If we go back to the Old Testament, there was this idea of being bought out of slavery as well. This was called the Goel. And this would be that a member of your family could buy you out of slavery. And in the book of Isaiah... God speaks of Himself through the prophet as the Goel, the one who buys His people out of slavery. And what we see in this text is this beautiful picture knowing that God purchased you at a cost that is above anything imaginable. That if you are one of His children, God has purchased you, has brought you into His family, and the cost was the perfect blood of the Lamb. Unimaginable, the cost. Notice also in this verse what He has purchased you from. He's purchased you from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. And so it's important that we get this, that He's brought you from a family to a family. So from an old way of life to a new way of life. And I want to point out, I'm going to run through some things that are awesome, but for the sake of time, I'm going to run through them. The first thing is I want you to notice the plan in verse 20. For He, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. So notice the plan that before the foundation of the world, that God had a plan of sending Jesus, the perfect Son of God, to die on the cross for your sins, that this was His plan. And I love that it says here, before the foundation of the world, for you. Notice the assurance in verse 19. Notice the assurance. With the precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. This is to bring into our minds, this would have brought into the minds of its original readers, the Old Testament sacrifice. And because Jesus died on the cross, was sacrificed for us and for our sins. There is no need for any other sacrifice because His work paid it all and put an end to the sacrificial system. So notice the assurance there. The blood of Christ is our assurance. Notice the hope in verse 21. Through Him who are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. You have been redeemed. Your hope is in God. And so fear. <laughs> now I want to I want to jump ahead in, in, in the book of First Peter to chapter four. In many ways, chapter four kind of plays out this idea. And I just want you to notice two things here. Notice in chapter four, verses one through five. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. 
so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable adulteries. In all this they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And you may say, yeah, Lewis, they are those people who are still doing those things and maligning you. They are ready to give an account. Jump forward to verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So here, again, we get this idea that judgment was taking place first and currently in the household of God. So I wanted to unpack these verses, and I want us to begin to see the landscape here, and I'm wanting to try to put all this together, that when we talk about fear, when we, when we talk about this verse that tells us to conduct ourselves in fear, I want us to have in mind fear as a, as a child of a loving father, this idea of reverence, this idea of awe that is motivating us to do something. And I think what the text is pointing us to is that it's wanting, us to, it's wanting to motivate us to look inward. To look inward. It's wanting to, to, to notice, to motivate us to take note and to look inside of ourselves and to look at our motivations, look at our desires. And when we do that, do we see the desire for holiness or are we seeing the desire for worldliness? And we as Christians are to fear judgment if our hope is placed anywhere but the precious blood of Christ. We are to fear judgment if our morality is merely external, if all we're trying to do is to win God's favor. I, I want to I show you, just, just briefly again, take you through something. Do you remember what Jesus' complaint and some of the things that Jesus said to the Pharisees? He said, you're like whitewashed tombs. That the outside looks all nice and pretty, but the inside is, is corrupt. I, I, in, my, in my devotional reading, as I'm reading through the Bible, I'm in John 17, I'm in various places, but one of the things that struck me is Jesus was being taken before Caiaphas that the Jews that were taking him there would not go in because they were afraid of being defiled. And they couldn't celebrate the Passover. And So get this imagery of what's going on. They are trying to murder the Son of God, but they're worried about being defiled by outward things. Crazy. Jesus further tells us that you will know His disciples by what? By their fruit. By what's coming out of them. And fruit is the outward presence of an inward reality. 
So when Jesus says you'll know them by their fruit, he's saying you'll know them by what's coming out of their lives because what is in is good and what's in comes out in the fruit. As Gary mentioned last week, in the Old Testament, uh, there were all these laws and uh, there were some holiness laws and a lot of them had to do with um, uh, some things that would have set apart Israel from other nations. So some of the clothing that they wore. Um, some of the food that they uh, ate or didn't eat. All these were things to show a separation from the world. Um, interestingly, when Peter uh, was asked to go and speak to this uh, Gentile man, and he saw this vision as he goes in Joppa, and God is calling him to go and speak to him, uh, Peter says, oh no, I can't go because you know, make me unclean. And so God gives him this vision of all things are clean. And that the gospel is going to the Gentiles, is going out to the whole world. And what we see is is because what matters when it comes to holiness is what is going on inside of us, not mere external realities. And so when we are talking here about God and about conducting yourselves in fear during your time on your stay on earth, we are not talking about mere external behavior we're talking about inward motivations and the things inside of us that lead to external behavior. So when we look at this judgment, and we look at two of the ways that we have talked about this, one of the things that it calls us to do is in our current state is that we are to be people as Christians living in fear, living in awe of our Creator that we are to be checking our heart and checking our motives. One of the things that we know is that God disciplines those that He loves. He tells us that in the book of Hebrews. In this very book, in letter, in verse 6, it says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, and so that God brings things, discipline, other times trials, into our life to discipline us into godliness. And so one of the things that we have to ask ourselves as we're looking inward is, do you desire godliness? If you desire godliness, then fear is the beginning of wisdom. Fear as I've said many times, not quite in this way, fear becomes the guardrails by which God gives us because He loves us and doesn't want us to go off path. Fear is loving because God is currently judging us because He wants what's best for us. And what's best for us is not what this world has to offer. What's best for us is what God has to offer and His reward. A small example of this would be for all of you new homeschool moms and dads who are working with your children. And let's say that you're studying math. And let's say that your child um, is doing a math problem wrong. Do you correct them? It would be unloving not to correct your child who is doing math incorrectly. 
because currently they need to know how to do it correctly so that they can get the right answers and progress in school. And for their future, they will need to know how to do math correctly. It is loving, loving to judge and discipline your children. And one of the reasons that it's loving is because on that day, in the future, that God, Jesus, is there, and He says, good job, my good and faithful servant, because as He looks at our lives, He sees the fruit of that discipline, the fruit of that love, and that we've been sanctified, we've become holy, we've been in that process, and we've we, we've, we've gone away from the feudal former way of life into something new. I just love these verses. And um, as I talked about earlier about ripping away idols, one of the things that these verses have done in my life over just this week is that it's, it's ripped away some, some temptations. Ripped away some temptations. And so as I think about it, there are just a couple things here. Think about this. God, the Father, who impartially judges, it rips away any temptation to hide or to run from God. To hide or to run from God. God, who is the God of the universe, who impartially judges, you cannot run away from Him. He knows you. He knows where you are. You can't hide from Him. And the wonderful thing about this God and not being able to hide from Him is that He is not looking to smite His children and to crush them. He is the Heavenly Father, like the Father and the Son of the prodigal, the, the Father in the story of the prodigal son, who is with open arms wanting to receive you back to Him. And so th- these verses and knowing that God is the one who impartially judges rips away any temptation to hide or to run from the sovereign, all-knowing King and judge in the universe. It also rips away any temptation to try to minimize sin. It rips away any temptation in our life to try to minimize sin. God is the impartial judge of the universe and he is just and you may say well Lewis what do I do and I will tell you what you do you confess and you lean on this God's mercy and he will restore you and he will teach you and he will lead you into things of holiness and pleasure and goodness like the psalmist said taste and see that the Lord is good Don't minimize your sin, but as the psalmist said, I cried out to him. It also rips away any temptation to make it on our own, to be independent, to work our way into a relationship with God. And you may say, no, Lewis, these verses seem to be saying that. No, notice in verse 18 as it started talking about what you were redeemed with and what God did, you cannot make it on your own. You were redeemed by the blood of Christ. Call upon Him. Call upon Him. So, to end, to end, I hope that one of the things that is stirring in you 
I think it was one of the things that Peter was wanting to stir as we look in chapter 4 in his hearers, the, the people that he wrote this letter to. And I want this to land heavy on us, is that we should fear conforming to this world. We should fear hoping in ourselves for salvation. We should fear wasting our life, wasting our time on things of this world or things that don't matter. We should fear not trusting Christ and living for Him, but trusting in ourselves. We should fear not loving boldly because God is our Father and is rewarding those who love boldly. We're going to see that the, you want to know how to walk in holiness? Peter's going to tell us to love our neighbor. Fear not being who you are because you've been redeemed from your former life. In this world, we will have struggles. And what Peter knows and what I want to just name for us is that all of us every day feel this pull, feel this pull that sin, uh, uh, snares, entrapments, this, this pull, the lure of this world, the lure of the evil one to, to come out from trying to live life in a, in a holy manner as God has called us to. We feel this pull to live life in a different way. And what we need to do is we need to fear going along with that pull. And the application is not to do better, but the key to, to look at your heart and look at your desires and to confess that this pull is happening. Confess that, God, oh, I'm, I'm prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. I'm prone to leave the God I love. I'm prone to prefer sin over sanctification. Confess the fear of the world. Confess that sometimes we fear the world more than we fear God. Confess that we're hoping in things that will lead to emptiness. So that your current judgment is conforming you to Jesus and is sanctifying you. Now, I want to ask you to do something a little bit risky uh, right now. Um, you know, so, you know, we, we don't have altar calls typically here at Single Mountain Bible Church. Um, there are about eight or ten people here. We're going to have, we're going to sing just as I, no, we're not doing that this morning. But what I, what I do think might be neat as you're huddled up there amongst yourselves at home, and, and I'm going to give you just a little bit of opportunity um, to do that. For those of us here, I want us to spend some time in quiet reflection. But at home, one of the things that I would like you to do is maybe talk as a family about times that you feel this pull. Things in your life, maybe even during these past uh, two or three weeks, however long it's been since you've been um, under some of these restrictions, um, things that maybe you've recognized as idols in your life. And, and then I would ask you to maybe just talk about that for a little while among yourselves, and then just spend time as a family praying and confessing and rejoicing in the fact that you have a heavenly Father who loves you and restores you to fellowship. So, really what we'll do is I'll let John and the worship team come on forward. Keep that in the back of your head. We will sing together, and then I would like for you to spend time as a family 
uh, talking about those things. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, Your Word tells us that the fear, the awe, the reverence of You is the beginning of wisdom. God, I pray that we would know that You are a just and righteous impartial judge and You're our Heavenly Father. That our sin has separated us from You, but You have redeemed us with the precious blood of Your Son. So God, I pray... I pray that all of us who have heard and listened to your word would understand what it means to fear you. And that we would come to love your judgment. And that it would cause us to live in respect and awe and reverence to you. It's in your son's name we pray, who gives us our hope. Jesus, amen.